There's a famous statement, well known from the early history of the church. It says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was made by the church father Tertullian in AD 197. The blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. In defense of Christianity against the Roman Empire, Tertullian said his words. Moreover, in this book, Tertullian said, We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed. Suffering, persecution, martyrdom have indeed been the calling of the church of Jesus Christ somewhere among the nations throughout the, its whole entire history. Each month, 30, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed, along with 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians. According to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world population lives in areas with severe religious restriction, and many of these people are Christians. Also, according to the State Department of the United States, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their government or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Um, Wednesday morning, I received um, a phone call from overseas. I, I um, blocked it once, and then it kept calling again until twice. And it was from uh, somewhere uh, outside of North Korea. And the pastor there said, I have 30 seconds, but I just want to tell you that we have received your Bibles that you sent. Um, made my day uh, that in a country like North Korea where it's forbidden um, to have a Bible, it's forbidden to worship any other God, um, North Korean Christians are growing. And it's still true that the blood of the martyrs is still the seed of the church. It's so true what Tertullian said, that we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is seed. We see this in the life of the first century church located in the city called Smyrna. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, it tells this is the second church that Jesus talks about in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, we find the disciple of John living on the island of Patmos of the coast of Turkey. Writing around 95 AD, some 65 years after the death and the resurrection of our Lord. He is given a vision of Christ and he was to give this message to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The area we know today as Turkey. And we want to look at these churches to see what the message of God might have for us in the 20th century. Last week we looked at the church of Ephesus, the loveless church. When we see the map. Um, Ephesus is, is, uh, Smyrna is about 40 miles from Smyrna. So they're very close together. Uh, last week we were able to look at the church of Ephesus, the loveless church. It was an active working church, a well thought church, yet it faced a rebuke from the Lord. And we often look at large and active churches, healthy churches, but often they are not. And Jesus told the church, that here that met in Ephesus, that they had lost their first love. They have lost their passionate love for God. And what we want to make sure here at Watermark Church is always that we are more concerned really about three things. That we are concerned about loving God. If you look here on my right, uh, the loving others and make disciple makers. That's really the only thing that we are concerned about. And this is based on the great commandment of God and, and the great commission of God. So if this is the only two things that this little church in China is known for, I'm okay. I'm more than okay. And I, I want this to be really what we're known for. Historians tell us that Smyrna was the most beautiful city in all of Asia. 
It was referred to as the flower of Asia, uh, the crown of Asia, or the jewel of Asia. Smyrna had one of the safest, wealthiest, and the most convenient harbors in all of Asia. He had estimated population about uh, 500,000 people when John wrote this letter. Today, the city still exists um, today with, with the name Izmir. I want to show you a picture of what's left of uh, what's some left. This is above ground, and this is the columns in Smyrna. And underneath this, in the next slide, is this place. It's uh, quite remarkable, actually, uh, when you see this place in in Smyrna. Um, the name Smyrna comes from the word mirror, and and if we go back to Bethlehem. Remember the Magi who gave this gift to Jesus along with gold and frankincense. And myrrh is a perfume that only give off its fragrance when it was crushed. So the more you crush the, the myrrh, the more fragrance it becomes. Uh, Nicodemus brought a thousand pounds of myrrh to Christ uh, when he was buried. Um, history, uh, it's so myrrh is used as an embalming process. And history tell us that Smyrna endured earthquakes, attacks, raids, and numerous oppressions. And there was there were five temples in the city. The Temple of Sibylla, the Temple of Apollo, uh, the Temple of Asclepius, the Temple of Aphrodite, and the Temple of Zeus. And so the city is known for their worship also of emperors. And, and to refuse to worship the emperor was seen as an act of treason. Once a year, every citizen in Smyrna was required to offer a tribute to Caesar, whoever Caesar is at that time. And after that, they could, after that, they will receive a certificate. And if they get caught with that certificate, they could be arrested or killed. And after that, they could worship any other gods. The Christians there in Smyrna were persecuted because they refused to compromise and they refused to say Caesar is God. The city was filled with idol worship. And here in, in, in verse 8, if you look here with me, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So the first thing that John tells us is the description of Jesus. So if you remember, the angel were earthly messengers, and it's best to see this as a man who is taking this letter back to the church. He's most likely an elder or pastor in the church. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Like I said earlier, Smyrna was a center of emperor worship, and everyone in the city was forced to worship Caesar as supreme. And here Jesus comes with a message to the church, and reminds them that he alone is what? Eternal. So in so when you see here the first and the last, that means God is First and the last, he's eternal. In verse 17 of chapter 1, the Lord introduced himself as the first and the last. The first and the last is a title given to Jesus as the eternal God. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 41 and chapter 44 and chapter 48 says this. Thus says the Lord, the kingdom of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. In chapter 44, verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing stream. Actually, verse 44, verse 6 actually goes even further than that. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And 48, verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Jesus, God calls himself here the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal one who always was and always will be the first and the last. In Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the final chapter of the Bible says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This speaks to the eternality of Christ. And so the letter of Smyrna is from the eternal one, from the infinite God who is already in existence and when all things were created and remained in existence after all things are uncreated, transcending all time and all creation. That's the God of the Bible. He is eternal. See, we live in a culture where we want to believe everyone is right. Even though we might disagree, society tells us we are all right. After all, truth, they say, is whatever you believe to be true. Our culture does not like to face up to the idea of an absolute truth. 
But the Christians at Smyrna were willing to give up their lives to say Caesar is not God. To the Christians in Smyrna, it wasn't very politically correct to hold to this view. In fact, it went against everything people in Smyrna said they believed. But these Christians were willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of the truth. Let me ask you something. I was asked this question yesterday. Does our Christianity cost us anything? Does our Christianity cost us anything? For many, it doesn't. For many, it costs us, oh, I need to be at church at 10 a.m. Uh, that, that's a cost. Oh, uh, I need to give. Uh, that's a cost. Oh, I, I need to serve. That's a cost. And, and I need to serve and that's a cost. And, and, but in, in Smyrna, there was no such a thing as being casual as a Christian. It wasn't allowed. They, they weren't allowed to be casual. And, and yet so sadly, in the, even in church today, that we're so casual. You know, we, we, we go to church whenever we want to. We go to church whenever we feel like going. We want to give what we want to give. We want to serve when we want to serve. It, it wasn't like that in Smyrna. It was, it, they couldn't be casual about what they believe in. You, you see that not only that Jesus said, I am the eternal God, but he also said, but who was dead and has come to life. See, Jesus is the resurrected Savior. Many of you might be thinking, if God is eternal, how can he be dead and come to life? See, the incarnation of Christ entered time and space in the form of a man, and now risen and sitting in the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews 7.16, I love how it illustrates for us the eternality of God and the death of Christ, where it says here, who has been appointed not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an indestructible life. That's how the Hebrews describe who Jesus is, as one who has an indestructible life. I love what Acts says here in, in, when Luke described this, but God raised him from what? The dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You know, when we look at this passage, we could just kind of gloss over the, the entire meaning of this passage. But, but when we see the truths of Acts chapter 2, Peter said, and he preached that God raised who? Jesus from the dead, right? We're all agreement? Right? We're all agreement? Say amen? amen. All right. So, and, and here it is. He's sobering. Freeing him from the agony of death. What does that tell us? Death is an agony. It's an agony, no matter what. Because it was, and I love this promise, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And here's the implication. If, if, if it was impossible for death to keep Jesus being held by death, it's also impossible for us who are Christians to be held by death. That means our lives are also indestructible. Our lives is also eternal. Meaning this, that even if you die, you live. That, that's what it means to be a Christian, that we never will die. That our lives is indestructible. Because it cannot hold us there. But without the resurrection of Christ, our life will be destructible. And death will have a hold on us. Well, I think the resurrection is such a bedrock in our, in our faith. Everything is held by it. What, what an amazing statement there. You see, death could not hold him. So think about it. If Christ were only God, he would have been unable to die in our place in order to pay the price for salvation. If Jesus was only a man, the death he died would not have been any benefit for any of us who believes. See, the doctrine of the incarnation is not just a mere theological reasoning. Rather, it forms the bedrock of our faith. I, I love what William Lane Craig said. Um, the doctrine of incarnation. Uh, William Lane Craig said, the doctrine of incarnation is not that the Son's divine nature somehow took a human nature. Rather, 
the claim is that the second person of the Trinity was was what has a divine nature, right? Took on, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature as well. So you shouldn't think of the incarnation in terms of two natures somehow blending together in Right? Indeed, the classical formulation is that the natures remain unchanged and distinct in the incarnation. They are two united only in the same sense that there is one person who comes to have them both. And that is Christ. So Christ added a human nature to his divine nature. He did not subtract his divine nature to take on his human nature. That is the bedrock of our faith. So Christ added human nature to his divine nature. He did not subtract from it. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 8. I am the first and the last. I am the resurrected Savior. Now when we move to verse 9, it, it gives us the praise for this church in Smyrna. And he says, I know your tribulation. Jesus says to the church, I know, meaning he knows everything we say and do. Nothing escapes the knowledge of God. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We need to remember that when we try to do things that are sinful and wrong, God sees it. We cannot hide anything from him. See, in Hebrews 6.10, it says, for God is, un- is not unjust so as to overlook your work and-, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. See, I, what we think about God is He just doesn't know what we have done wrong. He also knows what we have done right. And here in the church of Smyrna, He tells them, I know what you are doing right. Isn't it encouraging that He knows all the good that we have said and all the things, all the good that we have done? How many of you guys are glad that He keeps good records? How many of you guys are glad that He keeps perfect records? Right? That's awesome. But how many of you guys are not so glad that He keeps perfect records? At times when we are tempted to think that what we do is not important or too insignificant to be noticed, it won't. The eternal God, the first and the last, knows. And He doesn't forget. And He is reminding this church that He is present with them. You know, I I love the fact that God knows. Jesus, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation primarily refers to pressure or a great amount of pressure from the outside, not from so much the inside of the church. It was not coming from the other believers within the church, but from those who hate Jesus. The church is being crushed here in Smyrna. How many of us here would love to get a letter from the Lord? How many of you guys here would love to get a letter from the Lord or an email from the Lord? How many of you guys, if you get a text from the Lord, hey, you know, I was imagining this. What if I, what if I, every time I sin, I get a hey? How many of you guys will appreciate that? Every time you sin, or you're about to sin, how about this? When you're about to sin, and the Lord, you get a text, hey! Would that be awesome? How many of you guys, it will stop you? Right? Some of you guys need maybe two hey's. Hey, hey! Right? But it's so good just to be able to, to this church to be able to say, I hear you and I know you. See, I, I love what it was said. It was in my play in my mind last night. And I would say, Dear Watermark Church, this is how I see you and this is what I want to say to you. That comes with, to me with great joy and great fear. Okay? I just want to tell you. Um, but how awesome it would be and helpful that would be for us and for us as a church that we hear from Christ, dear one. Imagine now the church in Smyrna who is being harassed and poor and hated and despised, feeling small and insignificant, under persecution, under tribulation, facing the possibility of martyrdom, death. How wonderful it was to get a letter from the eternal one himself without any criticism or condemnation and says, I know what you're going through. How many guys sometimes forget that when you're going through things in your life that you get to forget that God knows? You guys tend to forget that? I want to tell you right now, 
He, he knows your tribulation. He knows everything you're going through. Even before you get through it, and as you're going through it, and as you walk away from it. He knows all of it. Sometimes we, we are so quick to, to judge God. How many of you guys have said this? God, you don't know what I'm going through. You can never say that because God is omniscient. He knows everything. Somebody asked me, you think God knows what I'm going through? Absolutely. He knows everything you're going through and you, everything you're about to go through and everything you're still going to go through in the future. He knows all of it. Right? That's why he said in Hebrew, in Romans 5, 3, and 4, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Oh, did you get that? Rejoice in your suffering. How many of you guys would like to delete that one? You can't. It's written here. Because I want to tell you here's the purpose. This is the reason why we can rejoice in it. Knowing that our suffering produces what? Endurance. Say endurance. And endurance produces character. Say character. And character produces, say, hope. See, all the reasoning why we can rejoice in suffering, because without the suffering, it can't produce endurance. And without suffering, it can't produce character. And without, without suffering, it can't produce hope. That's why it's so good to rejoice. See, God certainly knows that there are a lot of things that you and I face, the problems, uh, certain financial times, not to mention all the personal issues each of us face. And the problem can be a source of joy for us. Normally, when we face with a problem, our first response is to say, God, please take this away. How many of us have said that? How many of us have said this? Please take it away now. Right now at this moment. How many guys would like to take your suffering, those of you guys are suffering, who will take your suffering like a microwavable meal? All right? And think about that. Well, what's so good about a microwavable meal? You know, I love those Salisbury steak. You know, the microwavable meal uh, got me through college. All right? Salisbury steak. <laughs> right? And, and what we think we want to do sometimes is we want to put our suffering in that microwavable meal and put it in the microwave and we put one minute and after the minute is over, that suffering is over. How many of you guys like to have that? But it's not true, is it? Right? How many of you guys here sometimes says, God, I think this suffering has gone long enough. Stop it. And then you hear that voice, not yet. And then you respond, are you sure? And, and God will tell you, I'm sure, I'm eternal. I'm omniscient, I know. Right? But suffering has a way of helping us to what? To listen, doesn't it? There's no other tool in the world that makes us listen to God or desperate about God than suffering, is there? I know this. <laughs> Believe me, I know this. As I spent days after days in a hospital, the only thing I could say, God, I know you know. And I know that your mercy is new every morning and I thank you for it. But I, I'll be lying if I tell you that I didn't ask God, how long will this last? I, I just finished a book of Job uh, in my reading plan. And all throughout the chapter, Job was saying, How long, Lord? I'm innocent. How long, Lord? And I have these miserable friends that are counseling me. And finally, when we get to the end of chapter 40, 41, and 42, especially in 42, Job said, My mouth is quiet. I will shut up now. Because now I have seen you and know you. After all, that's what Paul did. Even Jesus prayed that way. But when God chooses to leave us to face the problem, we need to change the way we look at the problem. It can either be a stumbling block or a stepping stone. See, just don't look to escape the problem. Look for God's grace to carry you through it. See, God never promised any of us that we will live such a good life or an easy life. He actually said the contrary. He said, you will live a hard life. Right? Life is hard. But, but Paul said it's momentarily. And it's not even compared to what the glory that is store for you. God never promises a, a nice and an easy stroll to life. 
He actually tells us it's going to be hard and difficult and somewhat impossible. Struggles, problems, adversity, testing, and all this makes us stronger. God promised He will never give us more than we can bear. That's His promise. You know what's so great about the Bible? God knows you and He knows what level of suffering you can handle. He knows it. He knows the intensity of that level of suffering that you will go through. And He will only, and I imagine this last night, I was, I was going through it, that it's a knob. Like He just kind of like putting the knob. And sometimes I want to just put the stop the knob. Knob. Stop level one. I can only handle level one. And God puts it to level two. I go, God, what are you doing? And, and level three and four and five. And, and God, you got to stop at some point. But God said, no, you could take it one more level. You could take it one more level. In one more level, you could take it. And then he will stop. Because he knows that's the only thing you could handle. And with that, God said, I will show you a way out of it. God just didn't say, I'm, gonna, I'm so faithful that I'm only giving you what you can handle. And I know what you can handle. How many of you guys here, when you read the book of Job and say this, I could handle that. If you haven't read Job, you will not be able to say you can handle it. I, I was like, this, God, what if you gave that to me? No way. Right? Can you imagine? You got to read Job. So, Think about an athlete in training. They, they run for miles and miles, do thousands of sit-ups and push-ups, lift heavy weights. Why? So they become stronger and, and faster and, and to be at their best. There are many who say, that's too hard. They never work out, yet they want to be in shape. they rather sit in front of the TV with a Coke in one hand and, and a bag of chips on the other. Sadly, we have a nation of, of couch potato Christians. We don't want adversity. We don't want suffering. We definitely don't welcome it. But when we avoid adversity, we really miss out on one of the greatest blessings God could bring us. I'll be honest with you. Before Mother's Day of last year, um, I, I thought I knew God. I really thought I had a good idea who God is. While going through two surgeries and and chemotherapy for six months. I, I have a better feel about who God is. I would have never, people would ask me, is there any regrets? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 who likes going through two surgeries? Who, who likes to go to chemotherapy? No one does. But, there was no other way for me to know God. There was no other way for me to know Him as I know Him today. There was no other way except through suffering. I had to suffer and I had to experience His mercy and His grace and His kindness and His goodness. I have to experience all of that. I can't just know it in my head that He is all that. I need to live it out and He allowed me to live it out. Did I want that way? No. No one does. But if that was the only way that he could get through me, how loving he is, how good he is, how kind he is, how merciful he is, I'll take it. Because I want to know God. Don't you? So we welcome suffering because we want to know God. In James chapter 2, it tells us, consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Whenever, it tells you, you are going to face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be, be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. See, what we like to do with suffering is to get rid of it as fast as we can, to move on from it. But see, none of those will ever help us mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why we are considered pure joy. The term for considered means to let your mind lead you there. So when we look at all the facts, all the circumstances, we all come to a conclusion that every trial, every suffering, every persecution can be a source of joy. It adds up this way. Trial plus trial equals joy. Suffering plus suffering equals joy. That's what it is. 
Did I want to have cancer? Lose my job? Lose my spouse? Financial setbacks? No. I didn't want any of them. Nobody wants any of those things to happen. But when they do, and when we fall into a trial, and it was and definitely something that we didn't plan for, we choose joy. What, what I'm talking about is a joyful acceptance of what happens to you in life. I'm not calling you to laugh about it. I'm asking you to have a joy in your life that God has a purpose behind it. So instead of blaming God and fighting against Him, seek another alternative, joy. Don't seek to escape from what God has allowed into our lives. You know when people ask me, is there anything that, that went wrong into, into what happened to you? I said this, exactly. God has allowed this in my life. He has allowed it. This was not outside of his realm. He allowed it. He allowed this, this tumor to grow. He allowed this tumor to be taken out. He allowed this body to go through chemotherapy. He had to. Because I'll be honest with you. God said, I want you to know me. And the only way you're going to know me is through suffering through two cancers. That has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. Because he wants what? He wants me to know him. So when you and I go to suffering, here's the purpose. God wants you to know him. That's why. God is sovereign. Rather, we turn to him in times of trial, knowing that he will work it out somehow for his glory and our good. And we must learn to persevere and to trust God no matter what. And how do we do this? Don't give up when you face problems. Don't say, God must not love me or he would help me. Don't say, God isn't good or doesn't hear my prayers. Trust in the goodness and the love of God that he has for you. You know, I've been listening to Matthew West's song. And it's such a powerful song. It's been in my life because uh, it, it talks about, I don't deserve to, to be called by you, to be saved by you. And then you stayed with me and you came running after me with open arms. And, and, and it's so awesome to know that, that God is good and, and that God is loving and that He loves me. That He's not sending these trials because He hates me. He's sending these trials because He loves me. And He wants to show His goodness in it. And, and not only did, did God knows their tribulation, but He goes, I know your poverty. This was a poor church. He says in part of this, but you are rich. Materially speaking, they are poor, but spiritually they are rich. They're, they're crazy rich Christians. Okay, that's what they are. That's what Smyrna is. They're crazy rich Christians. Right? I, I kind of like that. And if we contrast Smyrna with the, with the church of Laodicea, I know many of you, that's the only thing you're going to remember from this sermon. Okay, remember more. And if we contrast Smyrna with the church of Laodicea, which is the last church, it says here, you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know what the, you are wretched and, and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, the church of Smyrna had nothing and, and nothing, had, they had nothing materially and was spiritually, but they were spiritually rich because they refused to bow their knee to the emperor. They became poor. And so the church in Laodicea had everything, but they were spiritually bankrupt. And let me ask you, how do you measure economic standing? By the type of house you live in, the kind of car that you drive, by the kind of cell phone or plan that you can afford? By the amount of your income, you can throw away and then, uh, on entertainment or travel, or do you measure economic standing by the fact that Jesus has reconciled you to himself and made you his child? Do you know that you're the child of the king? How many guys know that? How many guys really know that? You're whose child? You're the child of the king. Say king. You are, if you are a child of a king, what does that make you? A prince. A princess, right? That's what makes you, right? That's who we are in Christ. 
I don't want to start calling you guys prince and princesses. That's not what we're doing here. But in our standing with Christ, you are the child of the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who has promised you the world and life and all things as your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, we are rich because we have is what we have is eternal life. And so when Jesus comes on the white horse, the only thing that will ever matter in life is whether you have the gospel. We are rich because we have what will what will save us into eternity. You know, in First Corinthians three, I didn't see this until this week, and I loved it. In First Corinthians chapter three, it says here, "All things are yours. All are yours, and and you are Christ, and Christ is God's." So let me ask you: Are you rich? Are you rich? How rich? So so rich. You are crazy, what? Rich Christians. That's what you are. Because it says all, is, all things are what? Say yours. All things are yours. You guys get that? And the future are all yours. And you know why? Because you are Christ. And Christ is God. Not only that, not only does God know their, their, their tribulation and their poverty, but he also knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and not, but are not, but the synagogue of Satan. Jesus tells them that the source of their blasphemy towards the Christians in Smyrna as the synagogue of Satan. This synagogue was composed of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. These people claim to be Jewish, but their hearts were far from God. They showed their unbelief by doing the work of Satan. Satan was really behind the attacks, but God is the ultimate control. He allows Satan to do this. Not to defeat us, but to make us stronger. You know, when you read the book of Job, it really tells you that God is in ultimate control. Remember, he said, can I do to Job whatever I want? And God said, no, you cannot. You cannot kill him. So God has every control about all our circumstances, doesn't he? How many guys makes that kind of encouraging? How many guys are encouraged by that? That God knows how much I can take. Is that, is that so encouraging for me? And then the third point, we have the rebuke. There's no rebuke in this church. There's, uh, there's two churches that God didn't have rebuke in, the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. So we go straight to the solution. So here it is. They are in tribulation, they're in poverty, and they're being attacked by Satan. So that's their, that is their world. That's the world they're living in. And now Jesus offers them a solution. Jesus knows our works and our tribulation, our poverty, and, and, and the attacks that we're going to go through. And one thing is for sure, he will sympathize with us. You know what's so great about Jesus? Is he is our high priest. You know what a high priest is? A high priest is someone that could what intercede for you. And you know what the book of Hebrews says? That we have such a great high priest that's able to what? To sympathize with us, to have compassion on us, to be our encouragement. Right? That's what we need to run to the throne of mercy. And so we could what? Get grace and, and mercy. But sadly, many Christians do not, they make Jesus really their last resort instead of their first solution. You know, when we go through problems, well, first thing you do is what? You go to someone. Right? You go to someone. Do you guys ever know that God is a jealous God? Do you guys ever heard of, heard that before? He's a jealous God. So if he's a jealous God, he says, why things are not working out for you? Be- because you're not coming to me. You went to someone else and I'm jealous about that. Why? My, when I have problems, the easiest for me to do is, is, is go to Olivia, right? And she said to me this word, I can't help you. What? You can't help me and I just went to you and you can't help me? He says, I, I can't. And then the famous last word after, I won't. What? You said, we're married, right? And the Bible said, you are to be my helper, right? And so, help me. And she said, I can't. And I won't. I was like, I don't understand. We have a transaction. I have a problem. You help me. I go, 
Even before I even ask you, you need to help me. And, and Olivia will keep on going. I can't and I won't. Because, because it says, only God could help you. Do you guys know this in your heart, in your head? Only God can help you. If not, can you get that? Can you get that this morning? That only God can help you? No one else can help you? And, and, and the God who could help you, he is called mighty. You guys know that? He's mighty. The Bible calls him almighty, omnipotent. You know what omnipotent means? It means powerful. That's the God who can help you. If you ask me, say, hey, pastor, help me. I'll say this. I can't. And I'll say, I won't. So get used to it. Because <laughs> the reason is, I know where I'm at. I really know my pay scale. It's very low. And, and I know God, and he can help you. I'm merely, I can't even call myself an assistant. Not even worthy of that. I'm whatever lower that it is, that, that's me. But, but he can help you. When Jesus left this world, he said to you, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and he will be your comforter. He will be your shepherd. He will be your encouragement. And guess where he put the Holy Spirit? If you're a believer here, he put the Holy Spirit inside of you so that he could comfort you. So that in the comfort that he gives you, you could give that comfort to someone else. That's a reason, another reason why we go through suffering. In Psalm 56, 11, actually, let, let me give you three things. Number, letter A, be fearless. That's a solution to all of this tribulation and poverty and attacks. Be fearless. That do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Jesus, the eternal God, gives them a command in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I, I didn't like that. See, when Jesus said, I was expecting Jesus to say, okay, I know you're suffering. I'm going to stop it now. But he said what you are about to suffer. That's future tense. So he says to each one of us, it's not that suffering will stop. I want to prepare you that more suffering will come. And he says here in Psalm 11, in God, I put my trust. I will not be afraid. That is the call. And he tells them specifically, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison. Very specific. Some of you are, are going to prison and you will tribulation 10 days. This could be a specific or a temporary or it could be actually be over a period when they were all going to be put in prison. Some even suggest that that's not, it's not so much 10 actual days, but a period of suffering. See, under Roman, under 10 Roman emperors, which lasted 50 to 60 years, suffering and persecution and poverty have happened to the Christians in Sperna. From, from Emperor Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus, Aurelius, Septimus, Severi, Decisius, Valerian, and Diocletian. Right? Jesus a lot about endurance in Matthew 24 verse. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. He goes on to say that they will deliver you to tribulation, kill you. You'll be hated by all nations. False prophets will rise and mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased. Most people love will grow cold. And the one who endures to the end will, will be saved. And the one who endures to the end. And Matthew 10.22 says, You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end will be saved. We are going to experience severe persecution. To go to prison for a time is going to cost some of you your life. You're going to be tested all the way to death. How many guys here like Santa Claus? How many guys here like Santa Claus? Right? I don't like Santa Claus. Right? All right, let me change that again. I am warming up to Santa Claus. <laughs> okay. I read about Santa Claus. His name is Nicholas. Okay? I, I love his story. I just read it this week. And, and Nicholas was from a rich family, and his parents died, and 
And he inherited all his riches, and then he wanted to use his riches for God, so he started giving gifts. So that's how we get the gifts, right? That's Saint Nick. But but Saint Nick is should be known for more than his gifts. He should be known for his enduring faith. There was one preacher who was blaspheming Jesus, and Saint Nick just came up to him and punched him in the nose. Ho, ho, ho! Right? So when we think about that, and then he was persecuted for his faith. He was finally banished, right, from the church. And finally, and then he continued his work and he endured faith. So when you think about this big red guy, right, don't think about he's coming off the chimney. He's not. Because what if you turn on the chimney? <laughs> right? I mean, think about this for a moment. And there's no cookies that he will eat and there's no milk. None of that exists. Let's know him as a bruiser who will punch you if you say anything wrong about Christ. That's Saint Nick for you. So God tells this Smyrna church to be fearless. Number two, they're called to be faithful. And then you'll be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Let me ask you a question and I'll move on. How many of you here honestly wants to live godly lives? Just just raise your hand. Even if you lie, you know, just, just say, I want to live godly lives. Right? And I want you to know, if you want to live godly lives, here's the guarantee. You will suffer. It's a guarantee. Because Jesus said, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, but will be persecuted. Philip Doddridge once wrote, I'm more afraid of doing what is wrong than of me dying. It's more important to be faithful to Jesus than it is to go on living. Jesus is really worth dying for. He's, if he's worth dying for, then he's worth living for. Perhaps this is a real reason why many Christians remain silent when they should speak or inactive when they should act. All of us are aware that persecution, resentment, criticism, and worse would come all who live for Christ. The problem is we often retreat into a comfortable zone in which we do not let those around us know of our faith and continue to agree with their views of life and morality and values by either our silence of our our inactive participation. And the Bible calls this worldliness. And each of us need to ask this question, how worldly am I? So not only are they both called to be fearless, be faithful, number three is letter C, you're called to be obedient. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter to the church closes with the same call to obedience. It stresses the vital significance of the, what God says in Scripture, which emphasizes our responsibility to obey the Lord's command. Being fearless and faithful and obedient are great things, but we must keep in mind that all these things is not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to live in ways that show our confidence in Jesus. When we are fearless, faithful, and obedient, because Jesus is bigger than death. And when we put ourselves in harm's way in order to protect others or even to save their lives because we love Jesus and know that he is in control and trust him to take care of us, even if we die, we are following Christ. That's what it means to follow Christ. Let's be fearless. Let's be faithful. Let's be obedient just because we, because we trust Jesus and follow him by laying down our lives for others just as he laid down his life for us. In Exodus 19.5, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, then all of the nations, you will be my treasured. So when you and I suffered for Christ, Christ called you, will, you are my treasure. And in Joshua 21, verse 43 and 45, summarize for us what the Christian life is about. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to obey God. You want to make the simple life any, any, any pretty simple? Trust him and obey him. That's it. Trust and obey. And here's the, there's no consequences that's given to the church in Smyrna, but he was given a reward. So point number six, the promise of reward. And says, I will give you the crown of life. Please notice that Jesus didn't leave the church of, of Mir or Smyrna with a great warning of trials and then just say, deal with it, suck it up. God is not one of those, a distant deity who doesn't care. He's a faithful companion who responds to us in love. 
So he told the church that they would receive the crown of life. This crown symbolized victory. It would be best to argue that the crown is eternal life, which all believers will experience. In, in Mark 8.35, For whosoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He promised life to those who will suffer for his sake. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 58 tells us, Be steadfast, my believers, be immovable, knowing that your labor, your suffering, your persecution will never be in vain in the Lord. In James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If you love God, you will not mind suffering. The half-brother of our Lord promised that their suffering is never going to be in vain, and one day we will receive the crown of life. So consider suffering as a blessing. I know it's hard, but God wouldn't put it in His book if we can't do it or it's not worth it. Not only that, not only did He promise the crown of life that he will but you also will not be hurt by the second death the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death so after his words of encouragement and comfort christ ended his message to the church of smyrna with the second promise that those who overcome over all overcomers are believers okay you will not be hurt by the second death so if you are here and you believe in jesus you will not experience the second death in daniel chapter 12 it describes us this second death. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. And here's the second death. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. But those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 to 14, Jesus described the second death this way. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one of what he has done. I am again here. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. So if you are here and you truly know and love the Lord, if your faith is verified by a life of faithful perseverance, you will not experience this. But he said to those, he says, lead me to a place of everlasting destruction. I, I want to encourage you. It's so easy for us to get into our problems and our issues. But our role is that we need to focus on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne. That's where our focus should be. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you cannot follow him. If you do not know Jesus, the one who has conquered death and freed us from the fear of it, you will die in your sin. You will die a second death in the lake of fire. You see, the gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place. And three days later, he rose from the dead because he is the first and the last, proving he is the Son of God and offering the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins to anyone who repents and believes in his name. Will you take a picture of this and just say to someone this week, hey, can you read this and tell me what you think about it? It's as simple as that. Take a picture of this, right? And say to someone, hey, can you tell me what you think about this? And begin a discussion. If not, they will experience a second death. Just for a moment, think about the way Jesus died to protect others, to deliver those who would trust Him from the power of sin and death. He's able to save. He is mighty to save. He's the only hope one must have to be delivered from the power of sin and death. Um, can I ask you for four more minutes? And I want to play you this clip. And I want to... 
end our sermon today as an illustration, the hatred for Christians in Smyrna. And it gives us the history and the details of the death of one of their pastors. His name is Polycarp. Um, and let me just play you this clip. Eighty and six years I have served my Lord, and he has never done me any harm. Rather much good. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? How can you believe in only one God? There are many gods. Are you an atheist? I am a Christian. If you do not understand our doctrines, make an appointment. I shall explain them to you fully. Worship Caesar, and you may yet live. If we live, we live unto the Lord. If we die, we die unto the Lord. Therefore, either way, we are the Lord's. I have wild beasts I shall feed you to. Bring them. To me to live is Christ. To die is gain. I shall cause you to be burnt to ashes. You threaten me with fire that burns but for an hour. And are yourself ignorant of the everlasting fiery judgment that is prepared for the wicked. Why do you delay? Bring against me what you please. So be it! Away with this atheist! This is Polycarp, the great preacher of Asia. Leader of the Christians and destroyer of our gods. You are hereby charged with high treason against Rome. You shall be burnt to death tomorrow in the arena. 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and save me? Let me end with this. When the sentence of Polycarp was given, the people gathered as much wood as they can so they could see a big flame with Polycarp's name on it. And when they tried to nail him, nail him, he said, no need. No need. I will not leave. Because he had a dream the previous night that he would be burnt alive. And then he said this, Leave me as I am, for he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give by the binding. So Polycarp died by being burnt on the stake. Because he stood up for Christ. And that, my brothers and sisters, what made up the Smyrna, the Smyrna church was based on their pastor that they're willing to suffer for their faith. Will you pray with me? God, we confess that at more times than we like to admit that we are more ashamed of our faith than we are bold about it. God, we have a wonderful news, the good news of the gospel. That you came to save those who are lost and you want to offer the gift of eternal life. And God, there's nothing to be ashamed of. God, help us to take the words of the Apostle Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe in the power and the power of it to save to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. God, I pray this week that that even 1% of Polycarp's faith be in us. That we will not be 
fearful of what men will say to us. We'll not be fearful that if we lose friends and family, that we will not be fearful to stand for you. That we will be courageous and immovable and fearless and obedient, Lord, to the call for the proclamation of Christ and his gospel. So, Father, thank you for, and I pray for those who are in prison, in the persecuted countries. I pray for those who will die today for their faith. I pray, O oh Lord, for those um, kids who are called cubs by ISIS who will, who will kill people today. And, and God, even as we sing this song, He will hold me fast. God, that we take the promise from this song and, and claim it and know that in the midst of suffering and persecution that you will hold us fast. And this we pray in your name. May you stand as we close in song and prayer.